Hello, Marcus here again with another solo episode of the Just Some Musings podcast. This is a continuation of my previous posts on uh, financial advice for people of different age cohorts. This one is titled Financial Advice for Someone in Their 40s. Some morsels of advice for Gen Xers and my fellow geriatric millennials as we enter our 40s. So it's an important one to me, not just because I'm in my 40s now, but because it's such a crucial decade to get our stuff in order if we're if we haven't already done so in our 30s. This is my third of the series. You can find the previous ones, financial advice for someone in their 20s and 30s on my podcast page, muhs.ca slash podcast, or on your on your podcast player, scroll back a few weeks or months. Um, or you can find the original blog post of this one at muhs.ca slash fp40. And at the bottom, you'll find the, uh, the previous uh, blog posts. Each of these posts is not meant to be exclusive to people in a particular age cohort, nor are they 100% complete with all the information useful for that age cohort. I didn't want to repeat myself from one post to the other. So there's plenty of good information in the previous posts that also apply to people in their 40s. So give them a read or listen to. For many of us, our 30s are a time we struggle to advance in our careers. I know I was with a major change of employers at age 32 and then rebuilding my wealth management business. This came with numerous challenges along the way, along with some really low income earning years in which saving for retirement was put on the back burner. I personally wasn't able to really get serious about retirement saving until around when I turned 40. That might be you reaching age 40 and just now finally having a good surplus income and the capacity to plan for your retirement. If it is, you might want to read or listen to the previous podcast. In each of these posts, I don't aim to focus on just the average investor in an age cohort. Rather, let's consider where you should be if you're one of the more exceptional above average people who has been doing everything right through more than 20 years of adulting. And if not, if you're like me, where we should strive to be at in our 40s. If you're one of the exceptionals, you've got about half a million dollars saved up for retirement. Yes, I know that sounds like a lot, but again, this is this is what to strive for. Give or take that amount and also incorporate what you probably have an equivalent at defined benefit pension plan. So if you are like many people in Edmonton, work for the government of some sort, uh, that defined benefit pension plan is actually already worth quite a bit if you've been contributing to it for you know, 15, 20 years. At this age, you've probably also started an RESP for your kids and you're generally in a good cash flow position with no consumer debt and a large part of your mortgage already paid off. You also planned for and took care of your family's life insurance needs when you were in your 30s. So first off, I think the most important thing to think about, as I've already alluded to, is retirement. In both of my previous posts, I touched on retirement saving and how much easier it is when you start earlier. Hopefully you did start saving a little bit each month when you were in your 20s, or at least got serious about saving in your 30s. Because if you're just starting now, it's going to be a tough slog. I'm sure you know that. Sort of adds your midlife crisis, but if you don't have anywhere near that 500000 I mentioned saved up now, it's going to be a stretch to retire comfortably at age 60 if that was your plan. If that's giving you heart palpitations, a reminder also that now is a good age, if you're not already, uh, to start booking regular physicals with your doctor. I'm not kidding around. If you're in your 40s, you need to start taking your health more seriously if you want to have a fulfilling retirement someday and be able to live through it. Anyways, back to planning. Looking very simply at what you're going to need in retirement, let's look at what you're going to get anyways from the government and then find out where the shortfall is. So the first big one is the Canada Pension Plan. The CPP is a fund that we all pay into, so it's not a government entitlement that might disappear at some point, but rather it's like every other defined benefit pension plan, only with a generally worse payout. 
Still, it's probably the most solid of all the retirement income sources that we'll have and most guaranteed to be there, uh, more, more so than any private pension plan or even provincially sponsored ones. The last time I checked, the pot of money, the CPPIB or CPP investments it's called now, uh, is about just under $600 billion and it's continuing to grow. Once the entire boomer generation is on the take, it'll probably level off and go down a bit, but all of this has already been planned for. In today's dollars, the CPP pays a maximum benefit of just over $1,300 a month if you've contributed the maximum over 40 years of working and if you started at the normal age of 65. The blog post at slash FP40 has a link to a page explaining what YMPE is. That's the Yearly Maximum Pensionable Earnings. In short, it's basically a sort of average industrial wage, an arbitrary number that has come up with, that goes up with inflation regularly. Currently, currently it stands at $66,600 for 2023. And the new CPP enhancement is going to cause this, this number to go up a little bit faster than inflation as they're sort of trying to rework the, uh, the formula for CPP. Uh, the enhancement that I mentioned, that is the reason why you're seeing higher CPP deductions from your paycheck in recent years. Its, it, it's aim is to raise the benefits slightly from traditionally covering about one quarter of YMPE at the maximum to one third. Since 2018, the employee CPP contributions have gone up from around 2,600 a year to over 3,700 due to both the YMPE going up at a faster rate than inflation and the percentage contribution total by employee and employer going from 4.95% to 5.95%. So again, maximum CPP is 40 years of always earning more than the YMPE. Your actual CPP calculation will depend on a number of factors. For one, the fraction of 40 years, if you don't work for a full 40 years, and there is a dropout provision for child rearing, you can drop out your lowest income earning years. Um, or if you earn significantly less than YMPE, then that also comes into play. So if you, you earned, say, three quarters of YMPE over that time period, uh, you would roughly get three quarters of CPP. It's a lot more complex than that, the calculation, but um, uh, we'll, I'll have to leave, uh, leave details on that for another post. Old age security is another big one that most people get. It's more of an entitlement than a, than a funded benefit like CPP. The cost of OAS comes right out of our tax dollars. And for that reason, I usually don't incorporate it into my financial plans for clients when I don't have to, especially for younger clients. An entire generation of boomers drawing on OAS income over the next few decades will probably lead to some sort of legislated changes to the eligibility. So I wouldn't count on it remaining exactly the same uh, by the time we're 65. Rest assured, if you're a low-income retiree, you're likely to derive the full benefit of some sort. As things stand right now, the benefit starts at age 65, paying a maximum of $691 a month, going up to $760 a month if you make it past age 75 you're eligible for the maximum simply for having lived in Canada as an adult for 40 plus years. And you will start seeing some of this amount clawed back if your retirement income exceeds around $87,000 in 2023. Again, a number that goes up each year with inflation. All of your, all of your OAS will be clawed back if your income exceeds 142,000. Keep in mind that after age 65, spouses can split most of their pension income 50-50. And thus, we're talking about combined income for, uh, for retired spouses needing to be over $174,000 gross before the clawback even begins. So this is something that I do expect will probably be changed over the years, as I don't think the benefit was ever meant to be a supplement for high-income retirees. 
Uh, other things that might change, as we saw in the past already, is they might change the start date from 65 to 67 again, maybe even go up to 70, which is what a lot of other OECD countries have gone towards. So again, this is kind of a, this, this one's a variable that, that might not be as guaranteed as CPP. One other type of retirement income that hopefully you will not get is the guaranteed income supplement. So you can pretty well consider yourself ineligible for it if you expect to be getting uh, the maximum CPP and have some other retirement income from RIFs. This benefit is only intended for very low-income seniors, and I only mention it here to give you an idea of the absolute lowest retirement income benefit someone would be getting in Canada for those that completely mess up their retirement planning or just are in circumstances where they never could, could even begin to, to start saving for retirement. A single widowed divorced pensioner can receive up to around $1,000 a month, a little over $1,000 a month in GIS, in addition to their old age security, but overall income must be less than $21,456 in 2023 uh, to be eligible. Uh, there is, of course, a lesser amount based on as your income goes up, you get a lesser amount of GIS. But anyways, as a baseline, let's say a couple qualifies for 90% of the maximum CPP each at age 65 and have absolutely no other retirement income. What will they get? They'll get about $1,170 each from CPP plus the maximum OAS of $691 a month combined over $3,700 a month gross, which is actually pretty decent um, for a fairly modest retirement, at least while both of the two are, are alive. Uh, taxes on that level of income would be pretty close to nil once you factor in pension and age credits. So it is livable. Now retiring single or after one spouse passes away, that income is quite a bit less. A major weakness of CPP is that it has a horrifically bad survivor benefit when both spouses already are earning close to the maximum CPP. There is a 60% survivor benefit with uh, CPP, just as with many DB pension plans, but it only goes to the, toward the survivor's income up to the CPP maximum. So if they're already close to the maximum, like in this example I just gave, that with both of the uh, two of the couple earning 90% of CPP max, the survivor gets their CPP bumped up a little bit to 100%, uh, bringing total monthly income once they're 75 plus to 2060 a month. This is just barely above the poverty line. So what I'm getting at here is that you really need to save a substantial amount of money if you want a comfortable retirement. The above numbers are pre-tax and will adjust to inflation, as I've mentioned, but suffice it to say, that's probably not enough. I really only aim to give you here a baseline to start planning from rather than to tell you how much you need for retirement. That, that will vary from person to person, of course. The difference between your ideal retirement spend and the income you'll derive from the above sources is obviously what you need to build up for in your own retirement savings or have a defined benefit pension plan supplementing all of the above. Now, before we start planning, let's, uh, let's look at cash flow because maybe you have determined from your planning that you need to save an extra $1,000 a month for retirement. Where is that coming from? Your current family budget balances more or less, and you just can't seem to find where to carve that money out of. So that's this next section I want to talk about is where, where can we possibly save some money in our budget? I last talked about cash flow stuff in my first post of this series, the financial advice for someone in their 20s. Family budgets when you're in your 40s are quite a bit different than a personal budget when you're in your 20s. Fixed costs tend to be a lot higher, and even though you're making a lot more money in your 40s, with all sorts of competing interests for your money, you'll likely find the surplus cash hard to come by. Just think of Al Bundy in the intro to Married with Children. Where does he save the money? On the original blog post to this uh, podcast, I did put a link to a lifestyle budget worksheet. It's a little PDF where you can uh, plug in all your numbers, 
and see maybe you can find some areas to save or reduce some areas of expenditure. Uh, it can be tough though. You can look at all, th- all sorts of things to, to cut back on. But before you go turning your thermostat down to 17 degrees in the winter or selling your belongings on Kijiji, let me give you four hints to help you get started on recalibrating your budget. Food, car, house, and entertainment. These are the four things we all tend to overspend on and where there is the most variability and capacity to save. Let's start with food. I used to lump this one in with entertainment, but food is becoming a lot more top of mind in terms of uh, our, our food costs in this era of higher inflation and it's becoming a a significant variable on a lot of people's cash flows. Your grocery shopping habits, storage, and usage habits have become a very big variable. As a family, this is probably the first place to look for savings. Can you buy more in generic or in bulk? Can you cut back on waste? So don't buy bulk in everything, but if you are buying four packs of milk at Costco, is your family actually using them or are three of them going to, uh, to go sour? Uh, There's all sorts of uh, intricate planning, and it really matters from one family to another where you can find savings. But this is one area I think you should look at first. The next big one is your car or or your family's cars. As a society, we're notorious for spending too much on cars, buying them when we don't sometimes don't even need them all. We always want to drive the newest model, springing for the extra features, seeing the car we drive as a status symbol. I'm as guilty as anyone, perhaps more so. I buy a new car every four or five years. Uh, Recently, I bought a new SUV, and if I really needed to save a lot of money, that's probably a decision I could have put off for a few more years. Driving less, using transit more, effectively spending less on gas, depreciation of your vehicles, and parking, all of this can contribute to savings in your budget. So the next one is your house. A lot of people see a house as an investment, but really it's just a place where you live, not an investment. You want to buy as much house as you need and not go overboard if you can't afford really to do so. You don't want to have too much of a mortgage. We're all seeing the pinch now. Whether you're on a variable rate mortgage or you're going to have a fixed rate mature in the next couple of years, the prospect of these higher interest rates is kind of scary. Uh, We don't want to be buying multiple homes like cabins or ski chalets if we don't really need them and can't really afford them. So, I mean, that's one area to save money. And of course, deferring building that new deck or upgrading the kitchen if you don't quite need to do so yet. Those are other ways you can save money when it comes to your home. So then lastly, the big one, the most obvious one is entertainment costs. Obviously, the, the usual cliche, cut back on your cable and internet package, cut 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 Disney Plus, as, uh, as our Deputy Prime Minister told us. The stuff you don't need to use that often, you can cut back on. Really, nowadays, I would really say look at cable as something you can cut completely if there is a cheaper online version that gives you the, the same program that you, that you need. Uh, if you have a 60-inch TV and it's, it's still working fine, maybe there's no need to buy that 80-inch just yet. So obviously uh, an area where there's a lot of saving. I have found personally, as well as with, uh, with discussions with various clients, that an area that is really starting to uh, take a sledgehammer to people's budgets is the, uh, and especially over the pandemic years, uh, is delivery, restaurant delivery apps. Uh, Justin and I talked about this a few months back on a podcast, or might have been about a year ago. The, the friction of actually having to go out and sit down in a restaurant for a restaurant meal is gone now that we can get these things delivered to our home. So you still get stuck with the same cost of a restaurant meal and actually plus a little bit more for the delivery. And without that friction, we might be doing this more often than we otherwise would have as a family too. Uh, this is an expense you can, can and probably should cut completely out of your family budget if you're able to. Okay, now I've hopefully helped you save some money. I've uh, spoken about the importance of, uh, of saving more for your retirement, and you're, you're starting to save some, some more money and building up that nest egg. 
Next is the big thing that I think affects a lot of people in their 40s, which is behavioral investing, or at least it's probably the first time it really starts to, to take a hold on you and potentially lead you to making some bad decisions with your investments. I did go over starting to invest and saving for retirement in my last post, financial advice for people in their 30s. So if you followed some of the general guidelines there, you should have a fair bit saved up now. If you did it smartly, you avoided scams and fads along the way, and you're keeping your investment expenses relatively low. Now that you've got so much saved up, you're probably more susceptible to, to behavioral investing follies than ever before. On their own, I don't think that behavioral biases are any more prevalent in your 40s than in your 30s, but you have a much more sizable nest egg at stake now, and it's still invested at a relatively high risk level, so you're, you're getting the same percentage of volatility from the markets as before. When your portfolio lost almost half its value during the great financial crisis, you shrugged off a $20,000 drop in your $50,000 RSP back then. In 2022, you've likely experienced a 20% at least decline at some point during the year, last year, and your, your nest egg, assuming it's $500,000 now, had 100,000 lopped off at some point. That hurts a lot more, even though the percentage isn't quite as big. Now, you've likely got about 20 years until retirement, and your actual time horizon is even longer than that when you consider that you'll be invested for another two or three decades beyond that in retirement. Historically, there has never been a time when an investment in the equities of the great companies of the world returned negatively over 20-year spans or longer. The actual time span might even be 15, 16 years, during which there was never a negative, uh, negative return. Even during the Great Depression, if you had the misfortune of investing the day before the big 1929 crash, your, uh, your, inve your investment portfolio was whole by 20 years after that, or even about 15 years, if we consider reinvestment of dividends along the way. The worst span in terms of real return when we adjust for inflation for U.S. stocks was the 1970s, when a total real return remained negative for a 16-year span from the late 1960s up until 1982. This would have actually been diversified away, though, if you owned European and Japanese stocks, which soared during that time period. Uh, of course, it was more difficult to be globally diversified back then, as there were no global or international ETFs yet, and not very many mutual funds in that area either. But suffice it to say that investing historically over longer periods of time has uh, in, in stocks has yielded positive returns. So why do we humans uh, and why do so many people fail at investing? In particular, retail investors who in aggregates, and I'm sorry to say this, have an absolutely abysmal track record. And this is according to multiple revisions of Dalbar's Quantitative Analysis of Investor Behavior Study. In it, they found that, uh, and this, this, the, the numbers vary from year to year, and, there's, and there have been various studies and offshoots done of it, but generally they find the average investor has a return less than the actual market or less than the actual investments that they buy because of behavioral mistakes they make, buying in at the wrong times, selling at the wrong times, and so forth. The reason we do this is because we constantly fall victim to our behavioral biases, and when we do so, we do something stupid and usually shoot ourselves in the foot when it comes to our investing. The best way I know of avoiding these biases in the first place is simply knowing that they exist and knowing that you aren't perfect and are thus susceptible to them. We've got nothing to blame but our own evolution as we spend some 99% of our evolutionary history not having to deal with investments but in, and in turn having our brains more attuned to hunting, gathering and protecting our stuff. I want to touch on three behavioral biases that I think become especially prevalent whenever the markets crash. The first big one of course is loss aversion. This one is most directly affecting us when we see the markets decline a significant amount. 
We feel the pain of losing something we already have so much more than the delight or an, of, of an equivalent or greater gain. Perhaps this helped our ancestors avoid losing their quarry. They were more concerned about protecting whatever food they'd gathered uh, or, or whatever they were hunting uh, as opposed to maybe finding something new. It works against us when we're managing our money, just as it does when we are playing poker. We're too afraid of losing money. This could even go back to our evolution as primates, as I believe they've done some tests on chimpanzees. Similarly, you give one chimp two cookies, then you give the other one one cookie. From the first chimp, you take away that one, one of those two cookies. While the second one is happily munching away his cookie, the first chimp is, is upset. He lost something, even though he still has something. I did the same test to my niece and nephew, and I got fairly similar results. Now, the second big one is the action bias. So just like soccer goaltenders on free kicks, we're always biased towards taking some sort of action rather than taking none. Most of the time, the best action to take when the markets decline, if you're invested for the long term and provided you're very well diversified, is no action at all. It's hard to watch a train wreck in the markets and do nothing, though. It's especially hard for us advisors to counsel our clients that and tell them that the, the greatest value we provide them isn't doing something, but telling them not to do anything. Nobel laureate behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman once said, we would all be better investors if we just made fewer decisions. So lastly, the other big one is the herd instinct. This one will have us stampeding out of stocks along with the rest of the herd just as often as it will have us collectively drawn toward buying whatever shiny thing everyone else is buying at insanely high prices, whether it be crypto-related assets, pot stocks, real estate, dividend stocks, etc. Maybe it helped our early ancestors avoid starvation when we followed nomadic herds and dispersed around the world. Those who didn't follow the herd were left to fend for themselves and died off and didn't procreate, basically leaving us a herding species. It doesn't help us when investing, though. So, if you are in your 40s, you'll be invested in stocks for another 40 to 50 years, including your retirement, and they're guaranteed will be multiple market crashes in our future. In my blog post, I wrote this previous section in a bigger font to make the emphasis, but I'll spare you from shouting in your ear. Based on historical market precedents, over the next 40 years, there will be likely eight bear markets during which the markets decline over 20% below their highs. One has already occurred in the time since I wrote my original blog post in 2021. We will face further existential crises, maybe once per decade, during which the decline of the markets will be quite a bit more than 20%, and we'll lose all hope for tomorrow. This was the case in the period of 2000 to 2002 when we had the tech wrecks and then the issues with global terrorism, 9-11, etc. Then in 2008-2009, the great financial crisis once again, and those five weeks in 2020 that we probably all still remember pretty vividly. On average, we'll see 10% declines in the markets every one of the next 40 years. And we'll see 5% declines accompanied with CNBC markets and turmoil specials multiple times each year. Those above stats were tallied up by Capital Group and are based on what actually happened over the 70 years from 1950 to the end of 2019, during which U.S. stocks compounded a little bit over 77.5% annually in real returns, according to political calculations long-term S&P 500 calculator. You can find links to both of these, the Cap Group infographic and S&P 500 return calculator, on the original blog post at muhs.ca slash fp40. Bonds or other safer investments compounded nowhere near what stocks did. And let me reiterate, the cost of getting that nice 7.5% real return, a premium over safer options, meant sitting through 11 full-blown bear markets, 56 10% corrections, and 186 short-term turmoils.
As a reminder for whenever the next market crash or correction happens, I put all of the above stats and info on behavioral biases and more onto a convenient and easy to remember webpage for you to refer back to whenever that happens. It is at muhs.ca slash volatility. Okay, so in conclusion, once again, in the original blog post at FP40, I have another Maslow's hierarchy of sorts that's meant to help you put together uh, everything and prioritize. It includes in its lower planks all that I discussed in previous posts in this series, including being and remaining cash flow liquid and having a good emergency fund, estate planning, as we talked about last time, ensuring your family can still meet its goals if you and or your spouse die unexpectedly. A reminder also that it is inexcusable at this age, in your 40s or older, to not have a will, especially if you have a family. If you don't have a will at this point, I want you to drive to a lawyer right now and get one done. You can still listen to the end of this podcast. I'll wait. Okay, then the most important thing in your 40s is to ensure you've got an ironclad retirement plan in place. Retirement is really not that far away. You should already have a pretty substantial amount saved up or have a number of years of a good number of years of service built up in a defined benefit pension plan or some combination. CPP and OAS will not be enough. Retirement planning is my personal forte and really what I do. So get in touch with me via the contact page on my website for help on this. Then and only once your retirement plan is on solid footing, do you want to consider helping your kids in any way, be it education or first time home buying. They've got a lot of years ahead of them and can figure things out on their own and do their own borrowing of money. And maybe they don't, don't even need that much money for post-secondary school anyway. You guaranteed will need money for retirement. Figure out your retirement plan first. I included in the hierarchy to be conscious of your innate behavioral flaws when it comes to investing. They can cause you to make investing mistakes, which will put a bulldozer to all of this. And only once all of these planks of the hierarchy are taken care of, should you be entertaining anything else like speculative investing, trading stocks, buying investment real estate, major home improvements, sports cars, etc. Stay tuned for the next in this series of podcasts. If you'd like to already read ahead, you can check out muhs.ca slash fp50, where I highlight an issue that comes up a lot for people in their 50s. They get, I see a lot of them getting scammed or just taking advantage of in some way Uh, taking unnecessary risks because they have a fear of falling behind in in the wealth ladder. While I classify these posts in age cohorts, again, I want to reiterate, it's been my observation that everyone's at their own level of financial maturity. It's not uncommon for people in their 20s to have everything together and be managing their finances like people in their 40s, or for people in their 50s to be in such disarray that they would gain more from reading my posts directed at people in their 20s to learn some cash management tips. So in short, read them all if you can, and so long for now. Any views discussed in this podcast are those of the presenters or any guests and not necessarily those of Canaccord Genuity Corp. Statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice, and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views expressed are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investments, objectives, financial circumstances, or general needs of any individual, organization, or institution. Investing in equities is not guaranteed, values change frequently, and past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Investors cannot invest directly in an index. Index returns do not reflect any fees, expenses, or sales charges. Please do not hesitate to contact us should you want to know more about anything discussed in this podcast. CG Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Canadian Investment Regulatory Organization. Thank you.